I think it's just that aspect of of seafood that I that I love the fact that you know you can eat something so clean uh, and you can choose at certain times of the year when it's going to be fattier if you want a slightly fattier beta tasting fish and how it can change throughout the, the year it's just there's a lot more story to it but then I think fish is just in the blood and you just can't necessarily you can't necessarily you put yeah I can't put my finger on, on it John I really don't know what it is I love the most about it I just I think it's just it's just I just grew up with it and around it and so I think it's probably it this is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. New Zealand is a small island nation that is a world leader not only in rugby, but seafood production. It is a 90% net exporter of the 540,000 tonnes of seafood it catches and grows annually. Of the 130 species which are commercially fished and grown there, there is one which stands out as a world leader, the fishermen. From being amongst the most sought-after captains for vessels fishing on the high seas, to cutting-edge aquaculturists and innovative marine scientists, Kiwis are to be found everywhere in the world of seafood. Expat New Zealander Mark Irwin is one such Kiwi seafood guy. As the owner of 46 South Fish Co, he runs a company that has an integrated approach to the sourcing, managing and distributing of New Zealand seafood across Canada. Drawing on his background of multi-generational fishing experience and relationships across the seafood industry in New Zealand, Mark has established a unique export program for the best of New Zealand seafood into a country which is one of the largest producers of seafood itself. Going down and seeing the oyster boats coming in and then trying to scoop a couple of oysters out of the sacks that fall out and then taking them home and getting Dad to shuck them because we couldn't really figure out how to shuck them at that stage. You know, bluff oysters... Uh, you know, flat oysters, so you know, they're, they're uh, you know, a little tricky to open if you're, if you're not sure what you're doing, like any oyster. But yeah, they're probably some of my earliest um, seafood memories, that and, and uh, obviously catching cockabillies, like little, little fish in the rock pools down, down in front of the house. The town of Bluff is New Zealand's southernmost town, and literally the last stop before Antarctica. It is the farthest corner of the British Empire, which, since the days of the early sealers and whalers, developed a character entirely its own. The people and town of Bluff have had a long and ever-expanding contribution to the rest of New Zealand through the fishing industry and seafood processing. It's a you know, very windy, uh, right, you know, dips into this, the roaring 40s there, so she's a pretty wild place. You, you might get one, two nice days every sort of 10 days and you really make the most of them and you really get out there and fish as hard as you can in those short windows of opportunity. Bluff's about a town of 1,800 people. Uh, mostly everyone works in either on the harbour, like for the you know the shipping, or with the uh, with, you know fishing. Everyone's known by by their nicknames, and everyone just knows what's going on from from what's happening in the harbour, and and the coming and goings of the boats that are coming and going every day. In the words of William Hazlitt, the famous English philosopher of the 18th century, a wise traveller never despises his own country. For Mark Irwin, no truer words have been said. His travels led him to a life as far from his home as is geographically possible, but with strong attachment and a belief in the quality of the seafood from his home, he's forged an opportunity to mix business and travel. I would say 10 years ago, I guess, in New Zealand, there was a group of Canadians traveling around and yeah, I just happened to fall in love with one of them and found myself in Canada. So I've uh, been up here now for about 10 years, five of that in Toronto, start 46 South in Toronto and and uh, and while setting up 46 South uh, went to Vancouver for a bit and to work out logistics and and turned out that uh, 
Vancouver was a much more ideal place to live than Toronto. Not, not nothing bad about Toronto. Just you know, Vancouver is a lot more up my alley with the, with being on the coast and uh, and a direct flight back to Auckland. So yeah, so Vancouver the last five years and and uh, and yeah, it's um, a pretty good place living living. You know, obviously being so close to the ocean, so it's good. A love of seafood is universal amongst fish folk. A deep knowledge of seafood can transform love into opportunity. For Mark, 46 South came about through a combination of both. I was homesick, really, yeah. Like, I, I was kind of torn, you know. This, so I'd go back home and then I'd miss the person in Canada and then I'd come to Canada and I'd miss the seafood and the fishing industry that I was, you know, that, that's such a big part of my life that I didn't realise until I left Bluff or, or Southland that, uh, you know, that, that what, what made a large part of me was that, that Bluff upbringing. And so I just really wanted to connect back to those roots. And so... And the other reason was obviously having having fish again in my freezer that I could relate to, fish that I knew, fish that I liked, fish I grew up with, and trying to uh, also, you know, I want to go home as much as I can. So this was a great way to write my flights back off back to New Zealand. So 46 South was formed and and incorporated in 2013, late 2013. And we had a couple of, uh, we had one really interesting guy, Rodney Clark from Rodney's Oyster House in Toronto, uh, one of the best oyster houses in the world. And he knew of you know Pacific oysters being farmed in New Zealand, and he needed them for his winter. Uh, sorry, uh, the winter, uh, you know, New Zealand oysters for his summer um, diners because you just can't, you know, you can't really trust an oyster in the summer because they're spawning and there's the water's warmer, so there's more bacteria. So we we're bringing uh, healthy, plump, firm uh, Pacific oysters farmed in the, in the top top of New Zealand, Kuiper oysters. And also Coromandel oysters to Rodney's Oyster House, and that was sort of what we what got us going. What what we needed to get that volume, uh, initial volume, so we could really efficiently uh, add fish onto that and start offering it to restaurants also. So we sort of played around with that, doing some trial shipments in September 2013. Used his import license, realised this was a, uh, a you know this is a good thing, this can work, this ticks all the boxes for I wanted to start you know 46 South to connect back to New Zealand seafood. So I still felt like you know getting back to who I was. The explosion in demand for seafood, due in parts to its health benefits, culinary diversity and simply great eating, has resulted in one of the most dynamically traded foods on the planet. Seasonal, geographic and regional availability can provide opportunities for seafood to be sold on the other side of the world, but can also mean introducing species that are unfamiliar or unknown. Yeah, so we started with Kuiper oysters uh, and then you know, added Moved on, also added uh, coromandel oysters to that uh, smorgasbord of product, and then Lee Fish has been one of the biggest supporters of of, uh, of what we're doing. Greg's um, Greg Bishop's really uh, taken a liking to um, to what we were doing here, and was really keen to support what we we're doing. So the support from Lee Fish and also uh, from Southfish um, Calvin uh, with the oysters really helped us grow our business and get get going, start building some volume to make you know, these sort of efficiencies. You know, it's like with, with seafood, efficiencies helps keep the price down uh, to everybody so it makes it um, open to more more people. So uh, we bring in uh, one to two shipments a week from New Zealand, uh, mostly uh, leaf fish product, uh, and then in the uh, Canadian summer, the New Zealand oysters. And then we're also bringing the farmed king salmon and then bits and pieces of you know, all the you know, all the unique fun seafood, good quality seafood from New Zealand, Lucky Cloudy Bay Claims, uh, and then a bit of fish out of Bluff from my brother-in-law who started up his own uh, sort of fishing and fish fish packing facility called Gravity Fishing. So between 
those guys and and uh and any other unique things that pop up in new zealand it, yeah it's quite a it's quite a neat offering to be able to offer chefs up here who are usually only used to things like uh, halibut and lingcod and and um and sablefish and i've actually through this experience uh managed to like eat a lot more of the new zealand fish i would have never eaten because southland is uh you know where, where bluff is uh you know it's a blue it's blue cod country everyone eats blue cod and so you know and we also don't get it a lot like we don't get a lot of those north island species like like snapper and kingfish so yeah i've definitely up until this business i've never tried skate wings i would never actually eaten monkfish properly like i've eaten monkfish off the boat i'll take it home as a feed but i never, never cooked it properly until i met a chef who could cook it properly um but still yeah uh other than other than uh, uh maybe scampi but then i i you know scampi is very close to spot prawns here and, and we can easily catch you know go out and catch uh well got bags out of my freezer right now i've been i've been addicted to catching i think that's actually going to be what's happening next is i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna get into prawning i think i've i enjoy selling fish john I, I like but i really do miss commercial fishing and i think that's where you're gonna if you talk to me this time next year i think i could actually be running a prawn boat catching prawns so that's how much i love them the role of the intermediary in the seafood supply chain is to assist in connecting catches with cooks often they share many of the same principles in regard to the quality they seek However, sometimes there's need for interpretation, coaching and assisting both ends of the seafood supply chain to understand the needs of the other. Working with smaller operators can require much encouragement, hand-holding and patience. So I'd say like my, my brother-in-law about two years ago, three years ago with Gravity Fishing, he was fishing for the companies and he was just getting bored. Um, you know, I was just catching catching fish in a trap and no story and not, not really know where it's going, just chopping its head off. and. And I kind of showed him what we were doing with fish and and uh, through Lee and brain spiking it, you know, all the known, otherwise known as Nicky Jimmy. And I think through that and Instagram, uh, he really got a good like good taste of like, whoa, I can actually see where my fish is going and sort of set up his own little packing facility. And I think I think that's happening more in New Zealand with, with fishermen. I think more and more younger fishermen are, are, are sort of, through Instagram, uh, uh, finding that they can get their fish out there and get recognition for it finally. And I think that's what's been lacking. I think the company structure kind of was hiding the, the uh, and you know, or I guess today we've got technology, which helps a lot, but I think they didn't really recognize that fishermen want to see where their fish goes. They want to know how the customers were. They caught it. They want to know what happened to it on the other end. And a lot of companies couldn't tell them that. And I think through Instagram, even if you've got a company packing your fish, if that company is also on Instagram, they can kind of tag you throughout the story. So even if Lee Fish is packing it, we can make sure that Dan um, on on the Coastal Rover or Redline Fishing, uh, Dan Harvey can see his fish uh, that he caught it. It was packed at Lee, and, he, and it's, a, it's being eaten at Casamoto in, in Toronto, and he can see that picture of that fish of what the chef's doing with it. And I think whether you have your own packing facility like Nathan did with Gravity, or whether you're working for 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 a company like Lee Fisheries, I think it's really important to make sure you acknowledge the fishermen um, all the way through. And I think that's uh, I think that's where the change I see a change happening, not just in young fishermen but all fishermen in New Zealand, um, just having more ownership of their product. Running a multi-hemisphere seafood supply program is not a concept for the faint of heart or lover of long sleep. Not only are weather patterns, fishing conditions and international freight all primary challenges to the multi-hemisphere seafood operation, but time zones and a convoluted supply chain with the ambition of fishing to water can make the job so much more complex than that of a simple domestic fishmonger trading what he's purchased from the local market on a daily basis. Typical day for us ends, uh, is, uh, well, sort of starts in 
it all blends in with one recording, you know, with iPhones, right? So wake up, look at your phone, what's, what's coming overnight, what emails have come in, what problems have happened, and you sort of look, it involves a lot of fire extinguishing. You're constantly pulling out little, little problems. And then you have small victories throughout the day also. So, you know, a chef might give you positive feedback, uh, which is always, you know, reassuring to know. Um, we start this, it's easier to sort of look at it from a Monday to Friday sort of zero, uh, thing. So we start building up interest and in taking orders based on what the weather forecast looks like in New Zealand on a uh, about a Thursday, uh, Thursday, Friday. And we take, we sort of keep collecting orders through to about sort of Saturday. And then Saturday night being Sunday down in New Zealand, we place those orders or we call them wish lists uh, to the factories. And the factories just do the best job they can to fill those orders based on weather and supply. And, and the chefs we work with all know that, you know, we're, we're placing orders before the fish is caught. Uh, we really want to jump, sort of get in the queue for some of this fish uh, because, you know, a lot of this great, great product coming out of Lee is, is in demand around the world. So we want to get get in get in early and make sure the factory is aware of what what kind of interest we have for certain products if they show up, and then we book space with the airlines. Let uh, let let GVI, our, um, the great team at GVI Logistics in Auckland, know what uh, what we expect weight wise. So they can make a booking, and then come sort of Monday Tuesday. Monday Tuesday is sort of our quietest days because we've we've led up to the week after we've, our orders actually came in. We've we've sort of focused on building interest and. Uh, so Monday, Tuesday, the orders are kind of sitting with the factories and we're just sort of, you know, a uh, bit of house cleaning, making sure that uh, everything's sort of going according, there's no problems in New Zealand. And then on Wednesday in New Zealand time, uh, most of the product ends up in Auckland. Uh, it's been packed, you know, been caught and packed, made its way across the country and all consolidates in Auckland at GVI Logistics and gets put on a nighttime plane up to Vancouver. Uh, so that then arrives Wednesday our time, uh, usually around the afternoon. We've got about a five-hour window to clear that, break it down to all, to all its different restaurants and uh, and retailers and supermarkets, and then it goes across the country on Wednesday night, uh, on on depending on you know Montreal, Toronto, uh, Ottawa, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, and then gets delivered Thursday morning by courier. So it's cleared. So when it arrives here, it's cleared uh, and broken down to all its respective buyers uh, within that sort of. Th- with it, it's actually realistically it's only about a two-hour window if that because by the time it gets released from the airline and by the time it has to be at the cutoff for the domestic airlines you've you've got about an hour and a half two hours on a good day so and then um then thursday you know we're dealing with any problems that might have happened boxes getting broken by airlines uh, couriers we had a courier stolen once um so that was interesting with half a load of fish <laughs> so we had to quickly let all the restaurants know that hey your fish has been stolen but we'll see how you know things like that pop up on a thursday and then we start looking at the weather forecast in New Zealand again and get the newsletter out there to people. Friday, we start taking orders and uh, and then get our orders into the factories sort of, you know, on, on the Saturday night. So that, that's kind of what our week looks like on a day-to-day basis. Like it all just sort of becomes a bit of a blur. You, you're raising two children under three. Um, you know, you're, you're also uh, trying to live and, and enjoy life and, and catch fish for yourself at the same time. Whilst the world is changing at a pace like never before, with communication technology providing staggering access and availability. The seafood industry still relies heavily on old-fashioned relationships, where trust, knowledge and respect are the primary tenets of business. This business relies on on good relationships, Uh, you know, solid relationships that I think go back from just that upbringing in, in in the New Zealand fishing industry and just, you know, knowing these people, knowing these good people in the industry and knowing 
uh, where good product comes from in New Zealand, being able to source that. So, you know, and it goes the same up here with the relationships that we have up here in, in Canada. Uh, people that know how to drive the best routes around Toronto on a busy day on, on when there's snow and everyone wants their fish by three o'clock and there's so many delays going on, there's 20 centimetres of snow happening. Um, the freight team at, at Vancouver Airport, our family business, they, they break down um, you know, up to two cans sometimes a product all in about 45 minutes and they, and they just by looking at a box number and there's up to eight different suppliers on that that, that, and that, that can from the airline. So yeah, good, good relationships really help make a, make a business. Canada's commercial fisheries operate in three broad regions along the Atlantic and Pacific coasts and inland mainly near the Great Lakes on the US border. As one of the world's powerhouses of seafood production, and a domestic consumption amongst the highest per capita in the Western world, Canada seems well-placed to service its own seafood needs. The concept of selling New Zealand seafood in Canada seems like selling ice to the Eskimos, literally. Yeah, so it's very season-orientated up here. Um, and, and that's another reason why we're able to sell fish 12 months a year. Here, uh, the, the boat, there's, there's a bit of lingcod fishing year-round, but a lot of the boats had to travel really far. They're not lucky uh, like like New Zealand where they can just pop out and day fish and come home. They have to generally fish. They have to generally travel for about 120 odd miles before they even get to the grounds uh, north of Vancouver. And the logistics again, that product from north of Vancouver or, or or northern BC, northern British Columbia, it, it's it's you know it's far. So uh, the logistics and the seasonality of fish uh, and having certain seasons, even just from a management point of view means that really you can only get wild fresh fish uh, for about 40% of the year and that's usually from about spring to about fall up here, so over the summer. So really for the for the, all the other months, you know, people don't have access to fresh fish here and uh, like halibut season starts around April, uh, goes through to about, I think goes through to about October, November and a lot of these boats, just free, they freeze at sea and so, um, you know, uh, a lot of it, can't, you just can't get access to fresh fish. So that's where they sort of come looking for us. And uh, and then once they sort of realize that, hey, this fish can be caught Monday, Tuesday, and can be at the restaurant on Thursday, and they understand that it's sustainable. And yeah, there's a little bit of a guilty pleasure because they want to support local seafood. But then I just say, hey, we're a local company. We're a Canadian corporation. Um, I employ Canadians. Uh, I'm a Canadian permanent resident. So we still are a local company. You just got to redefine what local means. The wonderful thing about seafood is the sheer diversity of species to be found around the world. For a seafood aficionado, enjoying the harvest of seafood from a different part of the world can be rewarding. Yeah, uh, spot prawns. We don't we don't have prawns in New Zealand, and you know we just just wild prawns uh, are amazing. I can go and drop you know four traps and and have a hundred prawns uh, you know in in an overnight soak or even a, an afternoon soak, and there goes dinner for a couple of days. They're just beautiful but apart from spot prawns uh i would say lingcod is pretty cool like lingcod's like an under really undervalued fish up here it's basically a ling what we know as a pink ling in in new zealand and a uh and a and a cod um cod it's got a cod like texture uh, it's a bit chunkier uh, it's got a cod like looking head but it's got a ling looking body and it and it's a pretty neat fish and they're just just they honestly look like pink ling that we used to down in New Zealand and Australia, except they're they're a more camouflage green colour, and uh, that that's that's also a fishery that can be fished year round. But the weather, the weather does hack up that fishery a lot, and uh, so you know it it's, can be very intimate. Uh, another fish uh, that really blows my mind at the size of it is halibut. Like it's literally like a flounder that can get up over a hundred pounds, 
And so you're you're rest, you're wrestling this you know bottom dwelling fish that you know when you think you're catching flounders, but like they come up massive. Like they can they can capsize small rowing boats if you're out there you know, drifting around, uh, mooching with a with a little herring and and get a you know 100 150 pound halibut on your on your line. But those ones aren't allowed to be kept actually. So you know, they are the breeding ones. So there's a certain size limit on those on those fish, and so the smaller ones are actually much better to eat, and they're also healthier from a management perspective for sustainability too. So I'd say those three fish are really pretty much like your, yeah, they, they would be uh, the most interesting ones. And and then again, there's only really a couple other fish, and then that's it. So your fish variety up here is pretty. It's pretty slim. There's definitely lots of fish, but there's not a lot of actual commercial fish options. There's a lot of bad press around fish farms up here, and and I think a lot of it just doesn't have the data to prove like the scientific facts. You know, a lot of, a lot of it's the same arguments that you see around the world with fishing. You know, a lot of it's emotional based, not science based, and the science isn't really being pointed towards um, the fish farms being the problem. But uh, there is a lot of Atlantic salmon, which is not native to the British Columbia coast, being farmed here. Uh, so. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a bit of a sort of political uh, issue. At the moment, we're not allowed to land wild Chinooks uh, because apparently they're, uh, apparently the, the runs aren't as high as they should be for the Fraser River, which is happening soon. And they want to make sure there's enough Chinook salmon for the killer whales. But it's all just... Yeah, it's all very political. Um, there's a lot of science out there that shows that there's actually record numbers of Chinooks coming back right now. Uh, I know up north every year, like Ray Hillborn's been saying in Alaska, uh, since commercial fishing and industrial fishing, as we we know it started after the World War II, that they've been seeing more and more Chinooks come back to the rivers up there every year from commercial fishing because it's kind of like I guess that's the theory that if you if you have a whole heap of baby birds in a nest, uh, they don't all survive very well. But if you thin it out, just like your carrots, they survive a lot better because salmon actually, um, tissue when they go to spawn up the rivers, they eat a lot of the other eggs and because they want to lay down their patch. But if you you thin a few of the salmon out on the way up, more go up and more there's more successful breeding happens. So more fish end up going back into that pool of salmon that all congregate up in the Pacific somewhere between Russia and Japan uh, on their big Pacific salmon life cycle. So yeah, they're fascinating. It's a fascinating fishery. There's a lot of politics around it. It's the life and blood of British Columbia coast. It's, it goes through the soil. You know, the bears eat it. It decomposes in the soil. It goes into the trees. Um, the salmon life cycle here is huge and. Believe it or not, we still sell farmed Chinook salmon from New Zealand, and it's really popular. So <laughs> I didn't think I'd ever be able to sell a box of, sa of, of salmon here in Canada. People laughed when I, when I said we, we do. But uh, I forgot, that's actually, yeah, that, that is actually a pretty special fish up here, the Chinook salmon. And there are other species. There's, you know, coho and chum and, um, you know, some of the other, and sockeye, of course. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's like any, anywhere else you go. Everyone sort of thinks, oh, the salmon's... Uh, it's stuffed and they're not coming back, but then they have a record year the following year. So uh, humans trying to play God there some, somehow, and then there's emotion involved in politics, and really people just got to rely on the science. And the science is showing some pretty positive things about the salmon fishery here. I think there's a lot of problems going on just through communication and getting it out in the media. Globally, the impact the Asian consumer has had on seafood retail is to be held in awe. Their love for diversity of range, demand for quality and keenness to get the best value has driven the global expansion of seafood enjoyment. A fish market in the ubiquitous Chinatown, whether in Shanghai, Sydney, Seattle or Vancouver, will always deliver. I argue that Asian seafood retail is also at the cornerstone of the culinary diversity of chefs and restaurants these days too. I, I tend to go for the Asian supermarkets like TNT supermarket. They have a huge amount of variety there. 
and they also have a lot of live fish too which I've always felt a bit sorry for the live fish they never look that happy but uh, I always just find it so fascinating to go there eh? like it's just they've got like tanks and tanks of just you know even live lingcod it just amazes me that they can um, get these fish and they can survive in the tanks apparently lingcod actually sit in tanks pretty well um, then you've got obviously Dungeness crab up here too the, uh, but TNT supermarkets I would say you know they have the most variety but then you've also got like you know you've got your local fishmonger stores like Seafood City in Vancouver on Granville Island. Granville Island's a very sort of famous tourist spot with lots of arts and crafts and and Brian there at Seafood City he has a huge range of fish including some of the um, some of the snapper from Lee and then he's also Japanese so he brings in a lot of Japanese food, fish too and really there's nowhere else in, in, in Vancouver you can find a lot of that you know Japanese and other Pacific varieties uh, as well as your your fresh local British Columbian fish uh, in this um, Unless you, you know, you might run run some into some good luck at TNT, and then the rest of the supermarkets and fish retail stores and little sort of fishmonger shops—they just seem to just keep selling, you know, frozen sockeye and fresh halibut and fresh lingcod, and then your Dungeness crab, and and it gets a bit boring. But apparently, it's what people like. But I, I think people only like what they're given, so uh, it's nice to sort of, you know, it's tough selling stuff that's different, and I get frustrated when I, you know, I can look at a menu and just close my eyes and I know what's on it, and it's probably, you know, it's probably halibut crab and prawns uh, and so it, it, yeah it's, it's, and that's where we sort of cater to that that small handful of, of chefs across the country and retail shops across the country which is it's nice to know they're out there but they're, they're far and few in between um, in Canada and I'm sure it's the same in Australia where there's some really good stores that sell a lot of great variety but then there's just the stores that sell what you are uh, you know what, you, what they think you're gonna eat there's something about seafood people their grit passion and perseverance are universal Perhaps it's the fragile and dynamic nature of the trade that creates them, but it certainly stays deep in the bones of a true seafood person. I think I think I love it that I love that you can eat a whole heap of it and feel really full, and then 20 minutes later you don't feel like oh I need to go have a sleep like if you eat meat, you know. Like don't get me wrong, I love a good piece of lamb um, or pork roast, but fish just your stomach processes it so much faster. Uh, and, eat, and I think it's just a healthier fish. You don't need any. It's a healthier protein. You just don't need any um, any additives. You, you know, you just you get a nice in-season kingfish about now, you know, the next couple of months as you know as they're feeding for the winter, and, and just nothing beats it. The oil content's perfect. It's a, an oil content that doesn't doesn't get you too sort of overfull and sickly feeling. Like I hey, like I, I grew up eating you know farmed chinooks from the supermarket in New Zealand I never had a wild chinook until I came here but you have a wild chinook a wild king salmon same same we're using the same values as you hold for like you know wild species in New Zealand you know in the autumn and the fall leading into winter and the fat content on them as they're feeding on the bait fish is just incredible and so I think it's just that aspect of of seafood that I that I love the fact that you know you can eat something so clean uh, and you can choose at certain times of the year when it's going to be fattier if you want a slightly fattier fatter tasting fish and how it can change throughout the, the year it's just there's a lot more story to it but then but then so is meat too so if you hunt it then or you've got a, a granddad that farms it like i did then meat has a great story also but yeah i i think i think fish is just in the blood and you just can't necessarily you can't necessarily you put yeah i can't put my finger on, on it john i really don't know what it is i love the most about it I just i think it's just it's just i just grew up with it and around it so i think it's probably it This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. 
Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.